Good evening, everybody. A very warm welcome to Kaizen Central. Delighted to, uh, to have you with us today. And um, also delighted to welcome uh, Ian Higgins uh, from Less Common Metals, uh, who's come here to talk about, I suspect it's not a very well-known subject, um, but it is absolutely vital in terms of um, the security of our economy in terms of electric vehicles, in terms of just about anything you care to mention, um, rare earth metals and their um, and the permanent magnets they help to produce. I, I'm going to share very quickly. Um, this is uh, Ian Higgins's company, Less Common Metals, um, and that very much says what it does on the tin. A world leader in the manufacture and supply of complex alloy systems and metals, specialists in those based on rare earth elements. And Ian, first of all, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, hello, Georgia from Less Common Metals as well. Thank you very much for making this possible. Very much appreciate it. Um, Ian, Tell me, please, about the situation. The, 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 well, let's, number one, I, I made some claims about what rare earth metals do. Please, you better explain what they do, because you'll do far better than I will. Uh, and their applications, uh, not only in the technology of today, but the technology of the future. Okay, well, far and away, the most interesting application for rare earth metals today is as an essential constituent of rare earth permanent magnets. And the key feature of these magnets is they are extraordinarily strong, um, several orders of magnitude stronger than the kind of magnets you may be used to in terms of fridge magnets um, or other basic, the sort of basic things you might play around as, you know, in, your, in your children's toy sets. These are extremely strong, as I say, they're permanent, so they are resistant to losing their mag magnetization. And they have a range of fascinating applications. Um, traditionally, you would find rare earth permanent magnets in the hard disk drive of your computer, particularly your laptop. And it really was the permanent magnet technology that allowed us to actually go to portable electronic devices, portable computers, laptops, because it allowed for that miniaturization of components. Uh, we then see rare earth magnets appearing in a whole range of different sensors, chemical couplings, and then DC motors. And I think most people understand that motors require a magnet of some sort or other. Um, the rare earth based ones mean that the motors can be made very small indeed, very efficient. Um, the saving in weight is attractive for certainly for transport applications. So we see a lot of DC motors in automotive and just looking around the car, it's quite common to have easily a dozen or more DC motors and relatively simple things such as the seats, the windows, um, et cetera. And then of course we have the what the government likes to call the electric revolution, where they're driving the electrical revolution. But now we're seeing the rare earth packets cropping up in the drivetrain for electric vehicles or, or hybrid electric vehicles. 
And then if that's not exciting enough, we also get the rare earth magnets in the more modern wind power generators. And these are the ones where you want to operate without a gearbox. Um, the gearbox is heavy. It's complicated. It's prone to breaking down. If you stick your wind farm in the middle of the Irish Sea, like you've got them just up the coast from us at Less Common Metals, um, the last thing you want to do is to try and have to get out to the wind farm to um, maintain something that's breaking down a lot. Um, also, with the rare earth permanent magnet-based wind generation, you can operate at a wide, much wider range of wind speeds than you can if you have to use a gearbox or a more conventional system. I think one of the key messages about rare earth is that, that rare earth permanent magnets is there are possibly alternatives. But from a technical point of view alone, they're not as good. Okay, so less common metals. Tell us a little bit about the company. How long have you been dealing with these uh, uh, these these more? Um, I, I'll use the word exotic uh, metals and alloys that you produce. Okay, well, less common metals was born out of another company in Northwest England called. Johnson Nappy Rare Earth Products, which operated from, well, certainly before my time, and really its history stretched back to the 1960s, um, working in rare earths. Um, Less Common Metals was founded in 1992, primarily focused on making alloys. Um, the rare earth permanent magnets we talk about, they're made out of alloys um, containing rare earths and some non-rare earths. The alloys are made pretty much like any other metal-based alloy system by melting and casting raw materials. Less Common Metals um, does that. So we effectively sit somewhere midstream in the supply chain as much as we take raw materials in the form of metals, melt them and cast them into alloys, which are then supplied to somebody who does the magnet-making side of the process. Um, just, just to add a little bit more about what Less Common Metals does, in the last five years, we've also added another... Um, process and that is we now make our own metals so our raw materials we still buy in some metals but some of our key raw materials for the rare earth permanent magnet chain are the oxides rare earth oxides which we process through into metals and that's pretty much unique unique capability for us in the uk that nobody really outside of china or southeast asia does that today apart from from less common metals that makes you something of a world leader, as your as your website suggests. Now, where do you get your raw materials from? Uh, according to some of the news stories we read, it almost feels like China's cornered the market. But China's not the only place where you can uh, you can you can you can uh, get the the raw material for these rare earth uh, and permanent magnets. Well, in terms of actual production, particularly of production of any sort of downstream product, China does wholly dominate. And we could probably come on to the reasons why that is in, in a bit. Um, as far as LCM goes, we buy a lot of raw materials from China. We always have done. But I mentioned this um, new activity which we brought in five years ago now, which was making the metals. One of the key reasons for doing that, as well as giving us the unique processing capability, it also did give us some more options. Because whereas there's not really a lot of option for buying rare earth metals outside of China, we can buy the rare earth oxides from various other sources, such as Australia, Malaysia, for example. And we then can make at least some of our products with non our Chinese material. Excuse me, I've got a sneeze. Okay. So 
tell us a little bit about the about the the geopolitical element of all this. We know that the United States um, actually lost a great deal of its capacity um, because it was rather, um, what's the word I should use? It was uh, it, it was uh, sideswiped by the Chinese who came in and, and sometimes secretly bought into their production capacity and then took it back to China. Mm, yeah, well... I must admit, I wouldn't. I wouldn't really present it in that way. the The American companies, the American magnet companies that um, ended up in China, um, at least one of them was not what you'd call cutting edge. And I think you have to be blunt about this. But the way China really established dominance, well, first of all, they they do have quite a decent geological advantage, in as much as um, most. Well, there are some very low-cost deposits of rare earths in China, some very easy-to-access and work deposits of rare earths, which helps. Um, the Chinese um, leaders recognized the strategic value of rare earths many, many years ago, to the point that every five-year plan in China does specifically refer to rare earths and about the policies for developing the industry for the benefit of Chinese economy. Um, there has been quite a lot of joined up strategic thinking. It hasn't all gone to plan. And, and, and one of the, the fallacies that everything in China runs very, very efficiently. And they've got this great, fantastic system where they've taken over the world. Um, they've kept things moving in the right way in terms of developing the industry. And now they've created a fully joined up holistic industry, which has all the stages of the supply chain. They're reasonably well coordinated. Um, you know, they, they, they've benefited from the central planned economy. The, 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 the places can simply be closed down or, or, or instructed to move somewhere else or forced to join in with somebody else. Everything's reasonably well joined up. Um, the government supports the industry massively in terms of rare earth enterprise zones, in terms of research and development, um, funding research and development and making the results available free of charge. And it also supports companies working in supply chain by way of VAT rebates, which means that the price which people are led to believe is the price for intermediate rare earth products is actually overinflated because in China, those prices are discounted by a VAT rebate. And then on certain enterprise zones in China, the local authorities give further discounts on raw materials. So... I'm not sure this is answering the question correctly, but I think it's, it's, all, it's, all, it's all related, is that today's China's dominance in the integrated supply chain, and certainly the supply of magnets globally, is pretty much total, driven by a lot of things. Now, now there are negatives as well in there. Of course, there have been a, uh, the Chinese rare earth industry traditionally has had environmental issues associated with it, um, health and safety um, issues, it's, it's, it's fair to say that pre-COVID um, standards were being improved quite dramatically, but the position China found, finds itself in today has certainly been driven by a historical poor regard for health and safety in some cases. So that's really how China's got what it is today. I, I, and the reason I wanted to correct you a bit on the comments about buying into American technology is that China has as I say, invested massively R&D to the point that if you do any sort of patent search today, you'll find that most patents 
associated rarities, either applications or processing technologies come from China. The kind of research institutes they have in China are actually very impressive. And the, and the level of the work that's being done is actually very, very good indeed. So, so I'd be careful of this narrative of they, they simply come in and monstered somebody else's technology. I was actually more thinking that they weren't nicking the technology. They were actually undermining the American um, rare earth sector and setting it back quite a ways because the actual processing of rare earths is, as I understand it, extraordinarily expensive and involved. Uh, it's not something you can just say, we're going to start, uh, we're going to do this um, you know, in a couple of years' time. It actually takes an awful lot of effort and energy to do it. And so once you've lost that capacity, and America did lose some of that capacity uh, when China moved the companies back to uh, the, back to the, uh, China, um, it, it meant that they they actually America was put behind the curve. Uh, and and I, again, I'm going from that article for the Foreign Policy Research Institute. They may have overcooked the story. Yes, um, no, I. I... The processing stage of rare earths are all specialist. Um, you, you, if I can just run you through the stages required from having a rare earth in a mineral through to having a magnet, um, your first stage would be to, to mine the mineral, and typically the rare earths occur in very low levels of deposits. Um, you, it, an economic rare earth deposit, depending on the kind of spit of rare earths, can be anything from 0.1% rare earths up to maybe just 1% or 2% rare earth. These are, these are the deposits that are worked today. So the first stage is, I think, the technology for that are relatively accessible globally because that's kind of mineral processing, gravimetric separation, maybe magnetic separation, spirals, you know, a, a mixture of slurry-based processing and dry processing to give you a feed where the rare earth mineral is concentrated. But from then on, it's very specialist kind of processing. The, the first chemical stage is what's commonly called cracking. The, the rare earths occur tightly chemically bound within the mineral. So there's a, a requirement to um, attack with strong reagents under some very severe conditions. Um, that's technology which um, has been developed in China. It, it, it is available outside of China and a few um, research institutes, uh, particularly in Canada and Australia, are very active in terms of developing and enhancing that kind of technology. The, 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 the next stage after is to actually separate individual rare earths. Again, now China has taken that process. It's called, it, 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 the waste rare earths are separated is a process called solvent extraction. And it's just based on the idea that you have two immiscible liquids. If you think of an oil-water mix and you put them into a, um, a, a glass beaker and you shake them all up, and then if you leave them to stand, they separate out because the two liquids don't, don't mix with each other. And solvent extraction works on the idea that the rare earths will preferably be more soluble in one of those liquids than the other. And that's the basic principle, and there's an awful lot of very clever engineering that goes on to turn that into an industrial process, because the difference in solubility is very, very small. So you can't just have one beaker. You have hundreds and hundreds of them all in series so that progressively you start to concentrate up one rare earth, preferably to another one. That technology was actually developed here in the UK at Harwell, believe it or not, for the nuclear industry. Um, it was licensed to the Americans, I think. And it was licensed to the French company, Rome Palenque. And for many years, the only Western world 
person operating that technology was Ron Palanque in a factory in La Rochelle in the, in the west of France. China has really focused massively on that technology and developed it to base that the solvent extraction plants in China are now more advanced than anywhere else in the world. And, and pretty much, if we look outside of China, anybody doing rare earth separation, more often than not, they, they, they've started off by accessing Chinese technology. Not, not completely, not exclusively, but, but, but most have. The next stage is the state where I'm coming now to what LCM does, which makes metals. And I said we brought this process in five years ago. How did we do that? Simple. We actually got a team of Chinese engineers who came over and spent four months working in our factory. Um, it wasn't simple at all, but that's how it was done because massively know-how driven process. Um, uh, I, I, I say it's very similar to brewing or, um, or, you know, or, or specialist baking. You, know, they can, you can have all the manuals in the world with having the, the, the people, the hands-on experience who know exactly how to do this. You struggle. And we, so we, 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 we transfer the know-how from China into LCM. Um, alloy making what we do. Again, the people in Japan doing it, but um, nobody else apart from us. And then magnet making. The, the, the best magnet making plants in the world today are in China, unfortunately. That's, that's, that's an unfortunate fact. And that is a reflection of the level of investment that has been made at a strategic level in the Chinese industry. So, so, so there are a lot of intense processes, a lot of know-how, a lot of technology. And frankly, we in the West, uh, we've all sat around on our hands while the Chinese have made all these advances over, over the last 30 plus years. Yeah, it feels like it, doesn't it? Tell us about the the project that I believe you're involved in, um, which is a European project funded by Horizon 2020, uh, Secrete, Secure European Critical Rare Earth Elements Project. What is that trying to achieve? Okay. Well, fundamentally, it's trying to set up an all-European supply chain. So I, I took you through those six steps. It's really trying to recreate all of those six steps exclusively in Europe. Now, because the first thing you need is a source of raw material, and, 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 I, and I spoke before about mining and mineral processing. Um, Secrete starts somewhere else. We're not really blessed with any, well, some people disagree with me there, but you know, rare earth prospects in Europe, mine prospects, there are few and far between. There are a couple who are claiming that they, they believe they can. Um, who knows, they may, they, they may actually turn out to be right. But Secrete starts with fertilizer production. It starts with... The Norwegian company Yara, one of the world's biggest producers of phosphate-based fertilizers, and they process a mineral called apatite, which is essentially calcium phosphate, and they process it through a series of chemical digestion steps, precipitations, everything else, and they end up with a phosphorus phosphate-based fertilizer that they sell globally. Now, that apatite that they start with often contains rare earths, not a lot, say maybe up to about 0.6 of a percent rare earth. There may be none. It depends where they buy their appetites from. They buy them from all over the world. But you can have 0.6% rare earth. It's a, it's a pretty small amount, but the volume of fertilizer they're making is enormous. So at the moment, they simply leave the rare earth in the final fertilizer. It doesn't, doesn't do it, have any negative properties on the final fertilizer, so they simply leave it. What they've done in secrets is they have installed a process where they divert the mother liquor partway through the process, they strip out the rare earths, and then they introduce, reintroduce the mother liquor into the, main, the mother liquor into the main supply chain. 
that then is a source of rare earths and, and a pretty decent volume source of rare earths. And most importantly, because it's just a, a bit of a sidearm to the main processing, a low cost source of rare earths. Um, Secretes then takes through other process stages, including what LCM does, making metals, making alloys. So when I talk about our developments in metal making, we've been very fortunate to to benefit from that support and been able to enhance, improve our program, our, our metal making at LCM, making alloys. And then the alloys we make go to Europe's largest producer of magnets, and they will make specialist magnets. So the idea is they will then market magnets in Europe that come from an all European supply chain. So what chance do you think that you will there is of actually developing um, this all European I mean will, do you see a future where LCM will actually get enough um, from this that you will end your end your trade with China um, I don't think you'll ever get a situation where the rare earth industry ends its involvement with China and I'm not even sure we necessarily want to get to that stage what we want is a much more balanced industry where instead of getting say 95 percent plus of our magnets from china maybe it's something like 50 percent or well pick a number 40 you know there's a decent options there are decent options throughout where of, of good quality viable magnets it's not just china and i think that's what we're all striving for is balance now will we get an all european supply chain it's difficult to say because we need every stage of that process to, to, to make sense and be economically viable. However, there's no doubt that the secrets project, secrets or secrets, and yeah, we, we, we all pronounce it both ways as well, um, will give improvements in every stage of the supply chain. So even if, for example, it's not a European primary source, it may be a Canadian source or Australian source. It takes us closer to getting the goal, which is a non Chinese supply chain. That obviously, given the tensions and the worries about US-China relations, and then there's Taiwan and all that sort of thing. This is obviously, as I said at the start of the conversation, it's geopolitical. Um, it is about security, it's about defense and all of that. And it's about keeping your business going at the same time, isn't it? You've got to, uh, you, you, you can't be vulnerable to um, changes in political relations between uh, two of the biggest nations on earth. Absolutely correct. Yeah, you, 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 you're totally right there, Nick. And it's not just about keeping LCN's business going. Let's talk about Western world industrial businesses in total. Yeah, we all know we're moving towards electric vehicles. We want more wind turbines. Um, if we look at Chinese policy, especially the Made in China 2025 um, policy document that is widely available now, um, it very clearly states Chinese attention, China's intention to move further downstream. Not particularly fussed about selling magnets globally. They actually want to sell the cars and the windmills and the washing machines that contain the magnets. They want to sell the consumer goods. Now, you can't blame them for wanting to do that, of course. But what impact does that have on all our industries? You know, we, you know, I'm, I'm a simple soul when it comes to economics. I never ever understood how you actually can drive economies if someone doesn't add value. And to me, manufacturing is how you add value. And we, unless we take intervention like secrets you know programs which try to stimulate um alternatives we're just going to lose more and more our manufacturing base and we'll all find ourselves buying all our consumer goods out of china hmm. 
well, there is a there is a a, a, a rather terrifying prospect. Uh, Ram Shankar, we you put your hand up. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Ian. That was quite eye-opening um, and fascinating, and, and not at all surprising, um, given that how much I follow the geopolitical tension between China and my homeland, India, where I come from, and it's not surprising at all. Now, we are doing, as, as a country, as, as, as a collective, we're doing numerous things to, to try and bring back manufacturing, bring this back from China, do this, do that. But no matter what we do, unless and until we change our buying habits, right from the individuals, right down to all the corporates and companies, we're not going to be able to make any change, no matter how hard we try and incentivize it and government schemes. How do you suggest we go about changing the buying habits of the people? Because if nobody is going to buy it, there's no point in making it. So that has to be changed. And how do you propose we go about doing that before anything else? I really thank you for asking the question because it, 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 it's hugely relevant. You're absolutely correct. The only way I see a material change um, from the consumer side is if it comes from the actual end consumers. And the analogy I'm going to give you there is Nike. Uh, Nike having eight-year-old children in Bangladesh stitching footballs. And I, I mean, I don't know, but I, I, would, I would imagine that, that when Nike senior executives met, they would say, yeah, we know this is terrible. We need a plan and we must try to, to, to get away from this and that. And they probably had some plans in place, but it wasn't until there was a realisation from the general public and a public outcry that suddenly those plans were accelerated dramatically and massively and they started doing the right thing. And I think... Yeah, for me, an exercise like this is great. Just trying to pass the word out about how vulnerable we are on Chinese industry today. Now, now the, the blunt truth is, is that we can't make magnets that are as cheap as Chinese magnets. If, if we did everything for free, and if the magnet making everything for free, we may just about get a magnet that's somewhere close to a Chinese price. That's the, that's, that's the hard bit in truth. Now, when you're an automotive company and you're competing with five other automotive companies it's very hard for you to ignore that it's very hard for you in isolation take the moral high ground and say well i'm going to strategically do something different if you're selling your cars or your washing machines and the person buying it says where have those magnets come from now have they come from a fully traceable auditable supply chain where full levels of environmental social governance standards are being adhered to. Can you demonstrate that? Can you audit it? Can you show me your independent third-party auditor that has actually said that there's none of the problematic aspects of processing that have happened in China in the past? Um, strategically, I think I would rather buy my car with magnets that have been made using a, a non-Chinese supply chain. Can you demonstrate that? But the big push for that has got to come, A, from consumers. And then the next thing, what, what can governments do? It, it's one of those classic ones where we can't, it won't happen if we try and leave it to the free market, I'm afraid. It just, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry I'm delving into deep politics now, but we're probably where we are today because of the way free markets have evolved in the last two decades. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't think you'll find any um, any uh, gainsayers uh, uh, on on this group. I mean, the the, the sort of rather laissez-faire, let it rip free market has, uh, as you said yourself, uh, we, the the world stood by while China was doing this. People saw it happening and thought, okay. And of course, it is politicians that have to give the lead. Roy Spencer. Yeah, uh, thanks, Ian. Um, what opportunities are there to recycle? I mean, a lot of the rare earths that we use in our, you know, our laptops, our mobile phones. I mean, if I look in my loft, I'll probably find three or four laptops, and I won't be that unusual in that respect. Uh, I've probably got four or five mobile phones lying around, which are of no use to me anymore. Um, are there opportunities there to recycle from that? I mean, that Mount uh, Recycle more that they built <laughs> next to the G7 thing was, was absolutely wonderful. Um, but I just wonder how practical a point it actually made in terms of what you can recycle. Because I think the fertilizer example is, one, is, is a wonderful example of how the waste from one stream can feed another stream. And that's a brilliant bit of circular economy. Okay. Well, let's start with the, the bad news, first of all, is today recycling of rare earth magnets is very poor indeed. The reason it's very poor is that most incentives to recycle are based on weight, like a, a, a requirement to recycle X percent by weight of a of a car, for example. And or if we take your example, the hard disk drives, um, the magnets, the permanent magnets hard disk drives, they'll probably be two and they'll each weigh about 15 grams. They'll be coated probably with nickel. They're probably about, well, they're not probably, they will be about three millimeters thick in total, including the coating. And the sheer amount of labor required to get at those magnets means that they're not one of the materials where there's historically been focused on recycling. That's the bad bit out of the way. And the other bad bit is that people in designing the components have never really designed for recycling. But let's go to the good bits now. First of all, that is happening more. There is more of an incentive, more of a drive. Certainly, and some, there have been some quite useful European projects which have really given folks that. To design for recycling, to design so you can get out the magnets, get them out. But the other really bit of good news is here in the UK, that we actually have some of the world's best technology developed here in the UK for recovering the rare earths from permanent magnets. And that's technology that was developed at Birmingham University. Birmingham University is one of the global leaders in magnet technology. And they have specifically focused in the last few years on recovery of magnets from scrap. Uh, I'm sorry, recovery of, of rare earths from scrap magnets. And they are now looking to commercialize that process. Um, so their biggest challenge is going to be getting enough raw material in the form of spent magnets accessible to them to really mount a viable business. And, and it's one that will probably take time as the kind of components that are going out today into the market, so the ones that come back into the recycling loop in, say, 10 or 15 years' time. But I'm convinced that with the right level of support, they keep developing their model, they will have an elegant recycling business here in the UK. Where do you think the government could actually help in this? I mean, clearly the Chinese government plays a significant role in 
enabling them to penetrate the market. And they're not driven to the same degree by shareholder dividend. You know, they've, they've got a longer game in view. I mean, what, what kind of support could a government, a UK government give? And where would it be most appropriate? Well, first of all, if I, if I start with the, very, the fundamental supply, um, I, I do have high hopes about the fertiliser route, things like that, but it won't be the full answer by any means. There, there's not, there, there won't be enough material, I suspect, even though there are, there are good volumes. There's probably not enough for everything we need. Um, I would say that the, for the UK supply chain, it's likely that we're going to have to secure some sort of partnership with a company from, well, it will be from overseas, and so we look at friendly nations. And for us in the UK, the obvious ones would be Australia or Canada. Um, not the United States because they are so focused pretty much on on, on what they're doing internally. There, there's so much of a US-driven drive, but of course, it, it, in theory, we could also have collaboration with America. So, what can the government do? I think the first thing they could do is really drive those relationships at a government-to-government level. Make sure that the deposits of interest, the, the, the primary rate deposits of interest are secured for the benefit of UK PLC and, and actually realise when I said Australia and Canada I, I kind of missed out Africa as well, there are some deposits in Africa which potentially could also be of use so the first thing UK government you know, diplomatic um, support um, maybe even financial support, why should a Process in Australia or a miner in Australia who's got a rare earth deposit, what's going to make them want to feed it into a UK supply chain? Well, if there's a certain level of, of, of UK support to get their project up and running, then that helps to secure the raw material. Um, here in the UK, uh, well, we've got a lot of the infrastructure we need. You know, I, I mentioned at one time that the, the process of separating the rare earth the Harwell, um, we have a very strong, well developed chemical infrastructure in the UK. So we have access to reagents and the technology that we need is available. Uh, support with licensing, support with permitting. Um, another big one, a couple of the process stages, particularly what we do at LCM, are energy intensive uh, and they're electrical, they're electric processes. So what we need is low carbon, low cost power. You know, we're paying, and forgive me, I have to talk in cents because we do all our, our kind of cost modeling in US cents. Um, it's just a global thing, really. Today, we're averaging something like 17 cents per kilowatt hour for our electricity. If we sat in China, we're paying five cents per kilowatt hour in a, in, 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 in a, in a, on a dedicated feed. So we've got a, a threefold disadvantage straight away in our power costs. You know, we're not saying you know, let, let's get copious amounts of dirty coal fired power in, but you know, we're the world leader in world wind farms at the moment. Let's exploit that for the benefit of UK industry. Let's get some of that wind power into specialist areas where we have low-cost feed. And they don't just support our rare earth industry. There are plenty of other industries in the UK which are energy intensive, and we could really lever on our wind power and start to get some energy intensive industries set up efficiently. That's just, that's just a couple of examples. Um, but in fairness to the government, I would say they are looking strategically at certain aspects of the magnet supply chain at the moment. And at less commerce, we've benefited, we've been awarded funding by the government to conduct two feasibility studies. The first one on the supply chain, which does require us to make the kind of recommendations you just asked about. And the second one, we're also looking at a feasibility study on actually getting a magnet plant up and running in the UK. 
what would the market look like for a magnet plant once it was up and running in three to five years' time? What industries, what kind of magnets, what, what would this kind of operating cost, the capital costs, um, what would the footprint lay like, you know, designing the factory really. And, and ultimately from that, we want to get a business case out and, and a business case that's sufficiently attractive that we'll get the necessary support and investment to get that up and running. Again, that might require an aspect of government help. Thank you. Um, if I can ask Graham Cooper, who's had his hand up. Uh, Graham, you're, you're, you have yep. the floor. Thank you, Neil. Um, Really fascinating talk, Ian. Thanks very much for that. I have a question about rare earths generally. You're talking a lot about magnets. Are they not also used in batteries and fuel cells? Not really. No. Um, <laughs> the I mean, I'll show you where nickel metal hydride batteries. They're they're, they're the more old fashioned technology. They they do use rare earth. The metal in nickel metal hydride is 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 a rare earth, but. Pretty much everybody in electric vehicles now are gone to lithium-ion systems, which don't contain rare earths. Okay, thank you. Steve. Don't, don't they also use rare earths in, in, in hydrogen storage systems? You can do, yes. You um, which, yeah. But I'm not, I'm not sure how, how, how much popular... Um, hydrogen-powered vehicles use these sort of things. I've used them in the past for technical projects, yeah. and, and they are. The, their advantage is that they are very safe. In other words, whereas if you took a big a big bottle of, of hydrogen and rammed it into something, there'd probably be an explosion. Whereas the sort of uh, the rare earth systems, you can well you you can just you can just throw them into a fire and they won't explode or anything. So is that is that an area that you work in as well, or is it strictly the magnets that you do? Oh no, no, we make um, we make alloys that go into into hydrogen storage. Now some of those alloys contain rare earths, some of them don't, and I would be fraudulent if I would claim to be an expert on what advantages there are for the non-rare earth systems over the rare earth systems. So yes, to answer your basic question, you can use rare earth based alloys for hydrogen storage. Mm. And is, and is that business increasing or is it? Yes. Okay. Good. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, obviously the, 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 the government is, seems to be putting its, uh, lean, lending its shoulder to blue hydrogen, but everybody else is saying that green hydrogen is the future, but whichever way they go, somebody's got to store it and they've got to store it safely. Um, Ian, I, I wonder if you sort of taking a step back from your own business and looking out across UK manufacturing if if you were about to you know get either get into manufacturing or adopt your adapt your manufacturing processes are there any opportunities that you see out there for companies who um, who are looking for new ways to uh, you know to get involved um, in this particular supply chain that you're trying to develop in Europe? Opportunities. Well, the raw material is the building block. It's like the foundation you build the house on. So once you've secured that feed of raw material, then yes, I think there are a number of opportunities, and we probably have to be realistic and say we're never going to set up a supply chain that is totally competitive on costs with what china do 
yeah, we pay our people more. We have a, a better standard of living, and uh, yeah, and, and, and some of the less savoury aspects of Chinese industry, we we uh, we couldn't do even if even if people wanted to do over here. So, a simple sort of me to copy exact business model is unlikely to really get very far. So we have to look at innovation. Um, and there are scope for innovation, particularly in the way the rare earths are separated. Um, and I describe solvent extraction in basic terms. There's a lot of scope in that process alone for different variants, which will efficiently separate rare earths. There are a number of other methods out there for separating rare earths, and they can be further developed. Um, what we do at LTM metal making, um, now, the metal making process is strange because from a pure economic point of view, you won't get anything better. It's a very low cost way of converting. Um, the metal we use is a very low cost way of make, converting oxides into metal, exactly the same way that um, aluminium is made globally at the moment. However, it is a process which inevitably produces CO2 as a byproduct. So the carbon footprint of the process is high. And it may be that you can... There are other technologies which will make metals, and it may be that you can take one of them to a point where it's sufficiently economically attractive that the huge advantage of, of, of not generating CO2 is, 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 you know, is, is justified, if you like. Um, again, the alloys we make, there are different ways of making alloys, and fundamentally there are different ways of making magnets. And, and I talk about scoping this magnet plant. We're looking as much as possible at innovation in this magnet plant. Different ways of making magnets, ways of um, saving costs, ways of um, avoiding using the more expensive rare earths that go into some of these magnets, um, ways of making magnets smaller, more complex shapes, which therefore mean that the magnetic flux is better utilised. Um, uh, we're hoping to talk with um, design engineers for motors who could say, look, you know, if, if, if you had a complete blank sheet of paper and you could use any shape of magnet you want, what would you like to see? And let's see how we can develop those concepts. So, so yeah, I mean, as with any threat, yeah, you, there are opportunities. The one of the ways people respond to to threats is to find alternatives to technologies. Um, and we did a story um, some time ago about advanced electric machines, which uh, um, got to make certain I get the the, the the name right. They they're making switched reluctance motors for electric vehicles now switch switched reluctance motors have been around for well since the 1800s but they're they're yeah. they've always been noisy unreliable um and uh, uh and you know it's hard to make them work but they found ways to do it and that means that they can make electric motors without permanent magnets and make them cheaper um I'm wondering if 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 that is something that uh, I mean, obviously, at a national point of view, we've got to you know, welcome new technologies being developed. AEMs up in Newcastle, um, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the way that technology may find ways round using permanent magnets. Okay, well, as you say, the switch reluctance technology has been around for a long time. There's no doubt it is being improved. There's actually no doubt it will be used in certain electric vehicle applications. Um, I think the latest BMW actually has two motors. One is a switch reluctance motor and one is a, um, a rare based um, permanent magnet motor. And that's probably how we see technology like coming up. It, it will come in, it will be used in some cases. However, provided the geopolitical aspects of 
the rare earth supply chain can be adequately addressed. I would still say that most of the motors that go to a drivetrain will be permanent rare earth permanent magnet based, simply because they are better than anything else from a technical point of view. Of course, as you know, say if the geopolitical factors are brought in, then you've got to weigh up technical superiority versus supply chain disruption issues and that's where you may see a greater uptake in alternative technologies yeah it strikes me i I, I fully take the point i mean the difficulty is of course that you know the unpredictability of the geopolitical situation is such that again if i was in government which happily i'm not um I'd, i'd be looking to promote ways of um of encouraging innovative ways around permanent magnets just in case um that you know what hits the fan okay okay well i think you do you you you, you pursue both courses when you? you 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 do look at innovation but at the same time you look at what you can do secure to secure sources and, and, a, and a very often quoted cliche is that rare earths are not rare if you look at you can just google crustal abundance of elements you'll see a graph and you'll see that the rare earths, even those used in, in permanent magnets, they're relatively abundant compared to elements that we, we're we a lot more familiar with. And and, and and even some people will say, well, hang on, you need some pretty obscure rare earths, or like terium and dysprosium in your magnets. And yes, you do, but even they're more abundant than certain of the metals that we're a lot more familiar with in our everyday life. So, so it's all relative. It, it, it is more a case of trying to make sure that these prospects that are out there particularly the ones in, in friendly jurisdictions for us, uh, uh, Australia, North America, um, the, 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 they are able to get off the ground, get up and running, and they're able to supply economically. And at the point we have a more balanced supply chain, then the concern about geopolitical issues becomes less of an issue. I should have asked you this question right at the beginning because I do know that rare earths are not rare. Why are they called rare earths? Um, I think it's because they should have been called the hard to identify earths. And yet the person who named them thought that was a bit of a mouthful. So we just called them rare. Okay, anybody else got any more questions for, for Ian? I'm uh, understanding this or getting to, to understanding this is absolutely brilliant. Roy, please, yeah. Uh, a, li- a little bit of a historic question, actually. Um, original work on some of the rare earths was done at Harwell. And right. in my youth, I worked at the German equivalent of a Harwell, the um, German Forschungszentrum uh, near Karlsruhe. And although the main objective was actually developing fuel elements for their fast breeder reactor program, which is no more, one of the things I worked on was the thermal conductivity of lantern, lanthanum oxide. I, I'm just wondering, what, why did it all come out of that? area because i've never actually got managed to get to the bottom of that and i've forgotten why i actually was measuring the thermal conductivity plant at the time (laughs) (laughs) i'm really glad you didn't ask me why you would be interested in the thermal conductivity of the oxide because i haven't got a clue (laughs) (laughs) well i suppose it's fair to say i don't know for certain i'm 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 probably younger than i look so i wasn't (laughs) but um Two possibilities I would give you. One, one is that um, some of the technology developed in the nuclear industry, particularly things like solvent extraction, are very applicable to rare earths. So maybe people 
as they were developing the technology, felt it was useful to look at how it worked for rare earths. Another point, of course, is that the, the kind of elements of interest to the um, nuclear industry, the actinides, um, uranium, plutonium, thorium particularly, they occur, say, in that um, little row of the, well, the, the, that, that block that's never really, no one ever wants to put in the periodic table, that block at the very bottom that often appears in the appendix, and the rare earths appear on the row above it. Um, in practice, that means that most of the minerals which contain rare earths also contain radioactive elements. So if we took a, I go into the history of how rare earths ever landed in Northwest England and witnessed at rare earth products. The original processing that was set up in the 1950s was to recover thorium from a mineral called monazite. And that went on quite a long time through the sort of late 50s and early 60s, with the idea being that thorium was a potential nuclear fuel material. It's a radioactive element that can be used as a fuel. Now, monazite happens to be one of the main minerals that's still processed today to produce rare earths. So as the company Witness, which is called Thorium Limited, um, was processing this monazite, it was generating loads of rare earths, which is what led to the formation of a company called Rare Earth Products. I think oh, the, the people naming companies then, they didn't have a lot of imagination. Thorium Limited and Rare Earth Products, they did exactly what they said on the tin. Um, and so that could give you some link of associating the nuclear industry between rare earths. But also in terms of nuclear processing, um, and I feel because I, when, when, when I first got a proper job, it was the Atomic Energy Authority and, the, and the, on the science side, so, so I know, know, know a bit about this, is that in nuclear fuel cycle, um, you often add a moderating agent, something which um, slows down the rate of the, um, the nuclear reaction. And the common ones that are used are rare earths, particularly the rare earth gadolinium. So you probably find that rare earths were used quite a bit in the nuclear industry in, 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 in one form or other. So, so, so there, there are three reasons. I can't, I'm afraid I can't ask you a question directly, but I can give you three possible reasons why the nuclear well, industry had an interest in rare earths. Uh, thank you. And uh, I, I apologise in part the question, but I'm a, a lapsed metallurgist by training. So that was uh, hence the, the reason for my question. <laughs> lapsed metallurgist, heavens above. <laughs> lapsed and unfropped is what I normally say. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else got any more questions for, for Ian? Um, uh, anything to do with that? I, I'm, uh, I have to say, you, you talked about and we've discussed this quite a bit, Ian, about this, you know, auditable supply chain, labeling of products, consumer consciousness and all of that across a range of stuff. Um, and usually somebody says, well, for as long as people are going in, buying a T-shirt from Primark, wearing it and throwing it away, uh, for as long as that's happening, we're going, to, we're, we're going to remain in trouble. But I'm wondering to what extent developing um, labeling which has got which does ask the questions do you know where this is where the bits are coming from um, would be seen as protectionist um, because you know, again we have a for instance we have a, a, a business secretary who is a an 
avowed free marketeer um, and most of the cabinet are avowed free marketeers they probably you know they, they probably you know they'd rather kill themselves and uh, allow any form of protectionism to come into place do you think it's possible to get labeling in place and i throw that open to anybody but ian while uh, you you raise the issue i think it's essential to have auditing in place and, and for us to have traceability and then and before we talk about recycling, you know, the, the, one of the concepts when we talk about design for recycling is to actually have a barcode somewhere on a component, which can be read by the right person. You give the complete history of the, well, it's more for the chemical composition, but why can't you have a barcode that actually gives you the, the, the ethical history and that, you know, has hazards, young been in and, and, and audited that supply chain and, and, and verified that it's, um, you know, it's ethical. And, that, and I wouldn't see that as protectionism at all. I'd see it as essential. You know, we want to. Yeah, we all like to think that we're all citizens of planet Earth. You know, I don't think any of us are comfortable with the idea that one of the things that helping us in our quality of life has been, you know, developed in some really unpleasant circumstances, and you know, and people's quality of life has suffered as a result of that. You know, and I, and I can't. I think you have to be pretty rabid to consider it protectionism, just to sort of give the consumers more information about supply chains for um, the products they use every day. You may say, Rabbit, I couldn't possibly comment. Um, <laughs> but, um, but of course, you're absolutely right. Um, we now have the Modern Slavery Act, um, and companies have to make statements about that. And companies are also being expected to make, I, I forget, is it ESG? I forget which acronym to use that replaced CSR. ESG is the main one, environmental and social corporate yeah. governance. Yeah, yeah, um, and they're having to make those statements. So, in fact, it's it's really not much of a stretch uh, to start, um, you know, expanding that into in the way you suggested. Yes. Yeah. Any, anybody else got any thoughts on that? Any rabid protectionists? Um, ra sorry, rabid free marketeers in the group? I suspect not. But there we go. Andy Dorset. Andy Dorset. Oh, sorry. I was going to put Andy, Andy on the spot, but Randy. Yeah, that's Okay, Andy Dorset. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering because you, you very much are in the consumer goods industry. Um, um, does does any of that resonate around sourcing? Um, it, it, it does <clears throat> very much so. I mean, it depends. I guess it depends very much on the product that you're, you know, that you're selling. Um, but there's certainly some products that we sell, like hampers, for example, um, where indeed the 2D barcode, you know, and the traceability of the source of cotton, even back to the field where the cotton was grown and the name of the farmer. So, you know, it, just to kind of give consumers confidence in terms of, you know, what are they getting and where are they buying it from? So it's a very interesting point because, indeed, from everything you've said here, which has been a fascinating conversation, I know nothing about rare earth metals, I'll be honest, but, um, but listening to you know, your industry and the competition you've got with China and how do you find maybe those innovative approaches to kind of you know, change the industry and stay ahead and still be able to compete, I think so, you know, it, it's a huge challenge. Um, but I think, yeah, you've got to give... If you can give consumers or whatever they're buying, a car, a phone or whatever, and you can show how that's being ethically sourced, maybe that's an interesting angle, uh, you know, just to kind of trace it all the way back to, did you know your magnet came from 
somewhere in China or, do, you know, it's coming from Europe. I mean, I'm quite interested to hear what you said about the Horizon 2020 funding and getting a supply chain set up in Europe. Because I think if you could build something around that using novel processes and then the sort of certification and traceability linked to, by the way, this is coming from Europe and not from China. I think that could be a very, very interesting angle. Thank you. But not easy to do. Ram, you, you, you put your hand up. No. No. Okay. Well, listen, it's four minutes to um, seven o'clock, and we all know what that means. It's uh, it's time to uh, to say goodbye. Ian, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today. And Georgia, thank you so much for making this possible. Um, I should say that Adrian Warren, um, who did some work with you guys on photography, um, he's the one who put Georgia in, 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 in touch. And uh, uh, I'm very grateful because I think it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. And as always, enlightening and uh, taking us down paths none of us or few of us you existed. So Ian, thank you very much indeed. Thank you all very much for being with us. Uh, appreciate it as always. Um, I know that Ram is probably looking at the cricket while we've been on this and I'm desperately hoping oh no, what's, are they still only two down? Oh, heavens above. Okay, yes, there we go. Oh no, Vika's out. Vika's out for you. There you go. Oh, Vika, oh is he? Okay, well, yeah. There we go. Anyway, it's funny how conversations in like there's always tend to either stream into discussions about wine or cricket at the end of the end of the, uh, <laughs> the, the evening. So there we go. Very good. Thank you all again. Thank you for being on Kaizen Central. Um, from us at Manufacturing TV and uh, Less Common Metals and everybody else. Thank you so much for being with us. See you next time. Mm-hmm.